Good day, and welcome back to Latin 2 from the Church of St. Agnes. Today we are going to explore the grammatical concepts that are presented in Unit 20 in the Collins book, beginning on page 162. And we have two very important points of grammar in this lesson. So let's dive right in and take a look at the first, starting on page 162 deponent verbs. Now the word deponent in English comes from the Latin word depono. Pono means to put or place in Latin. De means away from or apart from. Depono means to lay aside. Deponent verbs are a group of verbs in Latin that have laid aside their active forms. They don't have active forms. They look like passive verbs, in other words, but they have active meanings. One more time. Deponent verbs have passive forms, but active meanings. And there are no active forms except for two instances in the participles. We'll talk about those in a minute. So, there are deponent verbs that are members of every conjugation. Therefore, we have four conjugations in Latin. You will see deponent verbs in all of those conjugations. And deponent verbs have three principal parts because they don't express the third principal part of a regular verb because that's the perfect active form. If you think about it, amo, amare, amavi. That's the perfect active. We don't have that form with deponent verbs. Therefore, we go right to the fourth principal part, amatus. In the deponent verb point uh, cases, take a look. There is an example verb on page 162 for each of the conjugations. Miror, mirari. So it's a long A that identifies it as first conjugation. Miratusum means to wonder or marvel at. Misere or misereri. Notice the long e, the sign of the second conjugation. And the final principal part, misertusum. Nascor, nashi. Notice there's no ere, short ere, because this is the passive infinitive, because these verbs have passive forms. The passive infinitive of the third conjugation is a simple i. And then natusum, patior pati, pasusum, the I-O verbs. And then orior oriri, ortusum, to spring up or rise. Notice the long I in the infinitive, which is the sign of the fourth conjugation. So, in each conjugation, there are, uh, there are uh, a number of the so-called deponent verbs. You will know they are deponent when they are given to you in your vocabulary or dictionary because they will appear, as these verbs appear, as passive verbs. Notice the R ending in the first principal part. That's your passive first person singular ending. You translate them actively. Okay? So, that's the, the strangeness about deponent verbs. Now, 
in the box at the bottom of the page, Collins gives you some notes. And um, we talked about them having three principal parts. We talked about them uh, being identified by their infinitive forms. We talked about, uh, we didn't talk about the last principal part. It's conventionally given with sum, showing the perfect indicative form. Without sum, this is, of course, the perfect participle, which here has an active meaning. And the only exceptions that we have in voice are those outlined in the box in number 4A and B. Deponents have present participles. It's kind of strange because, remember, the present participle is an active in form. So that's an exception. These, of course, are active in form as well as in meaning. Mirans, mirantis, means wandering or marveling at. And in letter B, deponents have both future participles. So we would expect a passive form participle, but we also have an active form participle. Miraturus means about to wander at. And mirandus means having to be wandered at. So those are your exceptions. But normally, just remember that a deponent verb, which in the vocabulary or in your dictionary is presented as these are on, uh, under section 106, they look passive. These are deponent verbs. They are active in meaning, but passive in form. So take a look, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> take a look at the examples on page 163. Dominus misere nobis. This means the Lord has pity or is merciful to us. The Lord has pity on us. Miseretur, notice the tour ending is passive in form, but we're translating it actively. Okay, this, this isn't a hard thing when you're actually doing the sentences, but you need to know, of course, which verbs are deponent and which aren't, because a normal verb in, with passive forms would be translated passively. So, for instance, if I had the verb amatur, that means he is being loved rather than he is loving. That's a regular verb. But a deponent verb, like miseretur, would be translated actively. The other way, of course, uh, to know or to uh, discern if a verb is deponent is if there's a direct object following a passive verb, you would assume that's a deponent verb. Why? Because remember, with normal passive verbs, we're talking about active and passive voice, in passive voice, the subject is acted upon and there isn't a direct object. So, for instance, in a normal passive verb sentence, I would say, he is loved. He is being loved. And then we need an agent by someone as opposed to he loves uh, X, Y, or Z, right? So we don't normally have an object with a passive verb. When you see a passive verb in form and it has an object in Latin, you would, your first thought would be, ah, yes, this is a deponent verb, a verb that looks passive but actually translates actively. The second example there. Jesus propter peccata nostra passus est. Jesus, on account of our sins, passus est, suffered. He suffered. 
It doesn't mean here he was suffered or he was acted upon. No, it means he suffered because the verb patior is a deponent verb which means to suffer. Now, in section 107, we are informed that there are such a thing as semi-deponent verbs. There aren't many of these. They're just a small number, but there are a few that have verbs that are deponent in their perfect system only. So the first two principal parts are active, but the third principal part and final principal part is a deponent form. So take a look at these verbs. Audio, audere, to dare. But the third, but the next principal part, sum. So that means I dare, but in sum it means I dared, because that part of the verb is deponent. Gaudio, gaudere, gavisusum, to rejoice. Confido, confidere, confisusum, to trust. So how does this work? Take a look at the example. Audemus ad patrum orari. We dare to pray ad patrum, to the Father. We dare, audemus, commonly followed by a, a complementary infinitive. We dare to pray ad patrum. But notice when we put it in the past, sumus, you use the passive form because it's a semi-deponent. We dared to pray to the Father. As I said, these are only uh, a small number of verbs which are semi-deponent. How do you know they're semi-deponent? Because in your dictionary entry, they will look like the verbs there as your examples. They will have the first two principal parts expressed active endings, audio audere, but then the next principal part, aususum, the third principal part looks like a passive in form, and it is passive in form, but you translate it actively. So one more time, the deponent verbs have laid aside their active forms. They have passive forms instead, but active meanings. Okay. I think when we do examples of these and you get some practice on them, they won't cause you any trouble whatsoever. All right, now, the second and more important point of grammar that is presented in Unit 20 is the introduction of the subjunctive mood in terms of verbs. Now, let's go back for a second and review some thoughts about our verbs. Remember, verbs have, like nouns and all other parts of speech, verbs have certain properties. So we know that verbs have tense, and we know that that tense can be present, it can be future, it can be past, and so on. So we have tense in verbs, right? We know that verbs have voice. In terms of Latin, we have two voices. If we were studying Greek, we'd have three voices. We'd have a middle voice. But in Latin, we only have two voices, like English, active and passive. So we say, I love you, that's active. Passive, I am being loved by you. In one case, the active, we are, we are doing the action, the subject is doing the action. In passive form, in passive voice, the subject is being acted upon. So we have voice, we have tense, we have voice. We also have mood. And so far in our Latin studies, we have been dealing 
primarily in the indicative mood. Last lesson, we talked about imperatives, and that's a, the mood of order or uh, command. But mostly we've been dealing in indicative moods, in, in, in the indicative mood. And that mood is the one that indicates, that's why we call it indicative, indicates a fact or a statement. So we make a, a statement like, I love you, as I just said. That's an indicative statement. But Latin also has a subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood in Latin or in most uh, languages that have a subjunctive mood uh, is a mood of doubt or uncertainty uh, where we are stepping away from factualness, from indicativeness, if you will. Okay? So uh, in English, we have a subjunctive mood, but it's very rarely used. We only have a few, a few uh, sort of uh, set phrases in which we use it. One is a contrary to fact condition. We say, if I were you, I would study my Latin very closely this week. If I were you, but I'm not. So you see, it's not a factual statement. And we say, if I were. I were? No. We never say, I were. I were a man? No. I were a, you know, we say, I was. I was, right? But in English, were is the subjunctive form, and we hold just a few of those over from uh, Old English. And there are a few examples, like if I were you, or uh, death till us, till death do us part, or thy kingdom come. We, we don't say thy kingdom come. We would say thy kingdom comes normally, but those are subjunctives. So the subjunctive in Latin is a mood of doubt or uncertainty. It's used primarily in subordinate clauses, clauses that tell the circumstances under which the main clause functions. And the reason the subjunctive is used in Latin in many of those subordinate clauses is it's, is it's the, the, the tendency of Indo-European languages to uh, construe subordinate clauses as being one or more steps removed from the indicative factual main clause. But that's uh, part for sort of theoretical grammar we don't really have to think about right now. Just know that subjunctive mood in Latin will be present in many subordinate clauses, and there are a few independent uses of the subjunctive that will be used as main verbs. And those, a couple of those we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, we're going to talk about the formation of the subjunctive, at least in the present tense. Something for you to note now is that Normal Latin verbs, indicative verbs in Latin, have six tenses, <coughs> right? Remember, you have the present, the future, the imperfect, the perfect, the future perfect, and the past perfect, or the pluperfect. The subjunctive has no futures. It has no future or no, or no future perfect because, in a sense, the subjunctive is thinking about something that may or might happen anyway. So there are only four tenses of the subjunctive in Latin. Today we're going to talk about the present tense and its formation. And I am going to 
depart again from the presentation of Collins because I think that this is a more effective way to present the present tense of the subjunctive, not just in one conjugation as he does here in the first conjugation, but in all conjugations. So please take out a pen and a piece of paper or you can write it on the top or bottom margins of your page. Uh, you might want to do that on page 164. Write this phrase. Write this phrase. It's a little sentence or a phrase. We hear a liar friar. One more time. We hear a liar friar. It's a little sentence. Uh, and it's a mnemonic device. One more time. We hear a liar friar. Now. Go back and circle the verbs in each of the individual words of that sentence. So, we, circle the E. Here, circle the E-A. Ah, circle the ah, A. Liar, circle the I-A. And friar, circle the I-A. Now, go back and over each of those circles, place this number over the e in we one over the ea in here two over the a in ah three over the ia in liar three io and over the ia in friar four now i think you see what i'm getting at here we hear a liar friar. These vowels, one, two, three, three IO and four, will be the vowels that are characteristic of the first, second, third, third I and fourth conjugations respectively in the present subjunctive of all those conjugations. So for instance, if I want to form the present subjunctive of the first conjugation, I go to the very root of the verb. Take your example there in the book given to you in uh, section 109 on page 164. Laudo laudare. Now, the normal indicative stem would be lauda. Laudare, drop the R, you've got the A, lauda. But in your subjunctive, we hear a liar friar. The subjunctive present vowel of the first conjugation is E. So instead of that A, you put an E in there, and then you add your personal endings, M-S-T, M-U-S-T-I-S, and N-T. So the active present subjunctive of laudo is laudem, laudes, laudet, laudemus, laudetus, laudent. Okay? And if we want to make it passive... We simply add the passive endings. Instead of MST, MUSTIS, and NT, we add R, RIS, TOUR, MORE, MINI, and NTOUR. And you see that down at the bottom of the page. Lauder, lauderis, laudetur, laudemur, laudemini, laudentur. So in this lesson, Collins only teaches you the present subjunctive of the first conjugation but I'm teaching you the present subjunctive of all conjugations because it's extremely simple if you remember the little mnemonic device of the sentence, we hear a liar friar. 
because if we want to go to the second conjugation, let's take our model verb moneo monere. We, we see by our little mnemonic device that number two over the vowels in here are ea. So ea will be the sign of the present subjunctive of the second conjugation. So instead of moneo, moneo, we get moneam, moneas, moneat, and so on. See? If we go to the third conjugation, we take a verb like duco, to lead, duco, ducere. Instead of duco, ducis, we have ducam, ducas, ducat, with an A. And if we take the third I-O conjugation, like a verb like copio, to capture, we have copiam, copias, copiat, and so on. And if we take a fourth conjugation verb, like audio, audio, audire, to hear, we go look at our word, our little sentence, we hear a liar, friar, we have an IA again. So our, our subjunctive is audiam, audias, audiat. So this teaches you all the present subjunctives in all the conjugations, both active and passive. All you do is take the base form of that verb, add the particular vowel of that conjugation from we hear a liar friar, and then the personal endings, either active or passive, MST, MUSTIS, or NT, or passive, R, RIS, TOUR, MORE, MINI, ENTOUR. Collins only teaches you, on page 164, the present subjunctive of the first conjugation. That's fine. But later on, he'll add the other conjugations. Now we already know them. For practical purposes, this lesson will only be testing you and quizzing you and exercising you on the first conjugation in the subjunctive. But that's put that on hold. This will come back to benefit you in future chapters as we go forward. So, just to review, we have several moods in Latin. We've been dealing primarily in the indicative mood. Now we are uh, introducing the, subju the subjunctive mood, the mood of doubt or uncertainty, used mostly in subordinate clauses in Latin, but there are a few independent uses of the subjunctive. And we're going to learn a couple of those on page 165. Now, um, perhaps the most common independent use of the subjunctive is the so-called hortatory subjunctive. This is a way of uh, giving a command or a hort, an exhortation in Latin. Um, I used to know a teacher that taught in our high school here in Minnesota, and she liked to call this the lettuce, the lettuce as opposed to tomato or cucumber subjunctive. And the reason she called it that was this hortatory subjunctive occurs primarily in the first person plural. It can also, there can also be a subjunctive in the first person singular or sometimes the third person singular or plural. But this particular subjunctive, the hortatory subjunctive, most commonly refer, is, is used in the first person plural when rousing or exhorting to act, people to action. And it's, and it's when we say, 
let us do this, let us do that, let us do this. That's why she called it the lettuce subjunctive. Take a look at the examples. This is an independent use of the subjunctive. In other words, a subjunctive that is used as the primary or major main verb of the sentence. Most of the time, as I said, I repeat again for about the third or fourth time, most subjunctives are used in subordinate clauses. But there are some main clause independent uses, and this is the primary one, the hortatory subjunctive. So let's take a look at the examples. Contemus domino canticum novum, from the psalm. Let us sing, contemus. Notice, the verb canto cantare is a first conjugation verb. If we said cantamus, that would mean we are singing a uh, hymn or a song. But this says cantemus, that e in a first conjugation verb is the sign of the subjunctive. Therefore, we translate it, let us sing domino in the dative to the Lord, what? Canticum novum, a new song. Let us sing a new song unto the Lord. So there is our hortatory, sometimes called a jussive or an ordering subjunctive. Take a look at the second uh, example. Baptizemur a Ioanne. Let us be baptized by John. Baptizo, baptizare is a first conjugation verb with, a nor, with an A-R-E ending in the infinitive. So it's a first conjugation. But when we see the E as the vowel, we know it's subjunctive. And therefore, it's the hortatory subjunctive in the first person plural. Baptizemur a Ioane, let us be baptized by John. So the let us subjunctive or the hortatory subjunctive. This is the primary independent use of the subjunctive. Sometimes as the box notes there, a first person singular is found, contem, let me sing. There'll be other polite subjunctive uses for such orders. But primarily, these commands come in the hortatory subjunctive in the first person plural. The let us subjunctive. Second use of the independent subjunctive that will be uh, given to you today is the so-called optative subjunctive or the subjunctive of wishes. Opto optare in Latin means to wish. In Greek, we have an entire optative mood, which is a mood of wishing or uh, thinking for things that are attainable. You can express such a wish in the subjunctive in Latin. And often that subjunctive in Latin will be accompanied or introduced by the word utinam. Notice it there under letter B, utinam. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. You have to go just by context. Notice the examples. Dominum semper glorificem. Notice glorifico, glorificare, First conjugation verb, uh, we would expect an A there, but when we see the E, we say, ah, that's the subjunctive. How would I translate this sentence? Always might I glorify the Lord. Or we would might say in this kind of stilted English, would that I might glorify always the Lord. Might, may I always glorify the Lord. This is a 
an expression of an attainable wish. Or look at the second example, mutes tuos modos. Would that you would change your ways. Would that, may you, oh, I wish that you would change your ways. That's an expressed uh, wish in Latin with the subjunctive as a main verb showing an attainable wish. We call it the optative subjunctive. Here's one with utinam. We normally see it in classical Latin with utinam. Utinam Egypti fugentur. Would that the Egyptians be put to flight. Oh, how I wish that the Egyptians would be put to flight. So these two uses of the subjunctive, the hortatory subjunctive and the optative subjunctive, are the two major independent uses of the subjunctive. In other words, when the subjunctive acts as the main verb of the sentence. As I said before, normally the subjunctive is used in subordinate clauses, and we'll learn a lot of those as we go on. But these are the two most important independent uses of the subjunctive. Now, the Collins also includes here what he calls the justive future indicative. And uh, this is kind of a footnote. Um, as he notes here, the future indicative, now this isn't the subjunctive, the indicative, the future, may be used for commands. Um, he says that these are commands that are to be uh, heeded both now and in the future. And uh, we, we do this in English when you think about it. Take a look at your example on page 166. Diliges proximum tuum. Literally, it says, diliges, you will love your neighbor. Now, um, in English, you can say that in, in, a, in a just a, a future, you will do this, you will love. But when you're giving kind of a command like this, we say in English, like we do in our command, and when we talk about the commandments, thou shalt, right? So here, you shall love your neighbor. It's like saying, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So, the, in other words, all this is saying is that the future tense can be used in Latin to give commands. We do this, right, when we talk to our kids. You will come in by 7 o'clock tonight, and you will do your homework, right? <laughs> and that's a just a future command, right? You will do your homework. Yes, I remember saying that many times to my kids. Okay, so that's, that's all of the uh, grammar in this, uh, the new grammar in this lesson, and it's important grammar. Uh, one more time, let's just uh, review what we did. We talked about deponent verbs, those verbs that have laid aside their active forms. They look like passive verbs, but they are active in meaning. They also have a subcategory of semi-deponent verbs, just a few verbs in Latin, but important ones. And then we talked about the subjunctive mood. And um, I uh, went outside the uh, parameters of Collins by giving you the little uh, phrase, we hear a liar friar, which reveals to you all of the vowels of the four conjugations and the third I-O conjugation for the present subjunctive. All you do is take the base of that verb, you add that particular vowel from what conjugation you are in, and you add your active or passive endings, 
And that's the way you form the present subjunctive verbs in all conjugations. Then we talked about two important independent uses of the subjunctive where they act where the verb the subjunctive verb acts as the main sentence as opposed to its normal function as acting as a verb in subordinate clauses and that is the hortatory subjunctive called by one of my friends the let us subjunctive the let us subjunctive let us sing a new song unto the lord and also the optative subjunctive expressing a wish would that I could, would that I glorify the Lord always, or would that the Egyptians may be put to flight? Please, would that you change your ways? These are attainable wishes. And then we just talked also about the use of the future tense in the indicative to give a command, like thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, so on, using the future as a jussive or as a command which we do all the time in English as well. So that is the, uh, that is the bulk of the grammar. That is, that those are the grammatical points in this particular unit. And um, when you take a look on page 166, 167 of your vocabulary, you will see there that Collins gives you a lot of deponent verbs. Miror, mirare, that's the first conjugation verb. Ad miror is a compound, to wonder at, to admire. Uh, peco pecare is a normal verb, it's not a deponent. But precor precare is a deponent. De precor, compounded form of that. Audio, audere, aususum, a semi deponent, as is gaudio, gaudere, gavisusum, a semi deponent. Miserere, misere or miserere is a uh, deponent verb, to have pity on, to, to have mercy on. Confido, confidere, confisusum is a semi-deponent. Uh, nascor, nasci, natusum is a deponent. Morior, mori, mortuusum, a deponent, to die. Patior, pati, passusum, to suffer aloud, that's a deponent. Orior, orire, ortusum, that's a deponent. So, you see, he's been, um, obviously, uh, presents here to you uh, many examples of deponent verbs to get you uh, into the uh, habit of using them and seeing them when they're in a Latin sentence. One other word I want to point out to you in your vocabulary as an important one is on page 167, the word opus operis, neuter, work, deed. It's a regular neuter noun of the third declension, opus, operis, operi, opus, opere. But when it's used with a verb to be, in a, like opus est, in the third person, singular, opus est becomes an idiomatic phrase in Latin that says, that means it is necessary or there is a need and often it's followed by an infinitive, there is a need to do something, or often with an ablative of the thing that is needed. There is need of a shovel. You would put shovel in the ablative in Latin, opus est, right? So that's an important word. It's an important idiomatic word. And uh, I wanted you to 
uh, be aware of that one. Okay, so for homework, um, let's turn to page 169, uh, 170, and 171. Um, this week, uh, for your homework practice, I'd like you to do under drills, number Roman numeral, num, numeral two, just have those five short sentences that give you examples of the independent uses of the subjunctive. A little bit of extra drill there. And then I would like you to do for your exercises this week the odd-numbered exercises. I repeat, the odd-numbered exercises. One, three, five, seven, nine, and so on. Um, let's do those uh, for practice. You can always do uh, all of them, the even-numbered as well if you like, but we will review in our midweek audio the odd-numbered exercises on pages 169 to 171. So I repeat, drills number two, Roman numeral number two, those five short sentences, and then the odd-numbered exercises on pages 169 to 171. That will be for your homework. As always, I hope uh, that I've been uh, clear enough in my presentation here on this new unit, uh, Unit 20. Um, if you have questions, don't hesitate to drop me an email at may at stoloff.edu. I will be glad to answer any of your questions or help you out in any way that I can. My best wishes to you for an excellent week. Uh, and remember, study your Latin. We'll talk to you soon again. Bye-bye.